Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to this lecture, which is the fifth in my lecture series on how business can better serve society. And I think business's responsibility to society uh, should be very evident today. We've just recently had the Extinction Re Rebellion movement. We had Greta Thunberg highlighting to MPs the importance of taking action on climate change. She expressed the concerns that businesses have mortgaged the country's future in their pursuit of short-term profits. And I'd like to welcome those of you who supported my lecture series right from the very first one, who've come to every single one, but also to welcome those who are here for the first time. I believe we also have some guests here uh, as, as from as, as far away as, as Chicago. And outside, there are transcripts of all the prior lectures. So if this is of interest, and if you want to see what I covered in the previous four ones, you can see the transcripts either um, outside or on the web. But each lecture will be self-contained, so don't worry if this is your first one. I will make references to the earlier ones, but I, I won't rely on what I said previously. So what are we talking about today? The general lecture series is on business. Should business companies serve society better? I'm going to focus on one particularly controversial element of business, which is the financial services sector. And that sector is worth £119 billion. That was how much the sector was worth in 2017. And you might think, well, that's a massive number, but how do I compare this to other things? But this 119 billion, that is three times as large as in either France or Germany. Those are also large economies. One might argue that they might be even more successful than the UK. So why is it does the, that the UK has such an outsized financial sector? Because the resources that we are allocating to that sector could go elsewhere. What does citizens' welfare depend on? Might depend on things such as food or clothing or medicines, goods that people consume. But the financial services sector doesn't produce any goods. Well, clearly we benefit from services as well. And one could argue that bank accounts and credit cards, they do help us. But a large part of the financial services sector might go on things such as mergers and acquisitions, share buybacks, those are not things that clearly benefit consumers. And also, this might not just fail to create value for society, but it might actively destroy value for society by reallocating resources from elsewhere. It might suck the nation's best talent to work in finance rather than these other occupations such as medicine. If you just look at the salaries that people earn, for an entry-level investment banker, starting your job, you're charting your career at age 21, you earn £72,000 on average. That is over two and a half times the national median wage, and that's for somebody at all stages of their career. Here, just starting out, you're earning 250% of the average man or woman. And after 10 years, that rises to 329,000. And even that is a small number. We've heard stories, and, and these are not just isolated cases, of bankers and traders earning millions of pounds. So if some of the nation's top talent is being sucked into finance and away from these arguably more productive industries, that is a concern. And that's why there were indeed a lot of um, re rebellion and revolt about the current state of the capitalist system. And indeed, there was a recent study which was um, referred to in the Independent and other newspapers claiming that the UK economy lost out on £4.5 trillion because of too much finance. Let me just read verbatim. The finance curse sucks talent and investment from other industries, costing £67,500 per person over the course of two decades. So this might suggest that your wealth has declined by over twice the median wage because of too much finance. But as you might know if you've attended my lectures previously, what are there's two themes that I try to draw out from every lecture. The first is to be discerning about evidence. So we can't take everything that we see at face value it may well be that certain things like this, which have large shock value, 4.5 trillion, 
finance is too big. They might get a lot of attention because they're so shocking. And they also do seem to support what people would like to believe. People like to believe the finance sector is too large and maybe the education sector is too small. But let's try to critically analyse what actually went into this study. One of the things I've tried to stress is that we really want to try and draw from the very best peer-reviewed evidence where it's been scrutinised so that we know that the methodologies are, are, are very state-of-the-art. What they did here is when they're measuring the financial services sector, what they only look at in terms of the size of the sector is the amount of private credit which is lending. But an important part of the financial services sector is not just lending money, but investing in the stock market, in particular the pension industry, which is really important, not just for rich people, but for ordinary citizens, saving for retirement. That is not considered in this number, but that's a way which allows ordinary people to share in the benefits of the growing economy by investing in shares through their pension. And even if they measured this correctly, well, what did the study actually do? What they looked at was they looked at different countries, the size of the financial sector and the size of the overall economy. And what they showed is uh, up to a point, the larger the financial sector, the larger the economy. But as with everything, there is an optimal point. And once you go past that point, when the financial sector becomes too large, the economy becomes smaller. And the concern here is that the UK is past that optimal point, its financial sector is too large. But that idea assumes that that optimal point is the same for every country. Well, it might be different, because different countries specialise in different industries. So maybe the UK doesn't have a comparative advantage in manufacturing or in agriculture, but maybe they do have an advantage in, say, insurance or pension funds. And so maybe it does make sense for the UK to have more financial services. And also, as we know, correlation does not imply causation. If indeed certain countries are um, doing worse, is that because of a larger financial sector or something else? Right? If we were to look at who, who are the fastest growing economies in the world today, they might be Asian countries. Does that mean that we should all start speaking Chinese? Does that mean that the UK economy has lost too much because of too much English being spoken? Clearly not, right? There's many other reasons for why Asian economies might be growing other than the fact that they speak different languages. So this is not a conclusion that we can immediately jump to. And what's interesting is that when you actually read the study, they are, to the um, credit of the authors, more circumspect, they say we should caution that any estimates will always be approximations. Other approaches could lead to different results. But the headlines will never talk about those caveats because it's very nice to try and come up with this shocking finding. Now, by saying what I just said, this is not to be an apologist for finance. I'm going to conclude at the end of the lecture there are many things that can be improved in terms of finance serving society better. But as I've said in prior lectures, diagnosis precedes treatment. Before finding the optimal solution to a problem, we need to effectively diagnose it. And there are some studies where actually the diagnosis might not be correct. So I talked about two themes in all of my lectures. One of them is to be discerning about evidence. And the second is the difference between the pie-growing mentality and the pie-splitting mentality. What do I mean by this? So, one concern that people have is, well, let's say that the amount of resources that we have, the amount of talented people, the amount of buildings that could be either banks or hospitals, that's fixed. And so if we compare these two pies, for those who can't see the um, actual text, the blue represents finance, and the orange represents other sectors. And so we think, well, there's only a fixed amount of resources to go around. Then the larger the financial sector, the larger the blue, then the smaller the orange. But if somebody works as a banker, she could not be a paediatrician. 
but you could only do one of those two jobs. Similarly, if a building is used to be a bank, that building could not also be a hospital. And so under the view that there's a fixed amount of resources, maybe we should be concerned about a large financial sector, because if the pie is fixed, it takes from other, other sectors like medicine. But the question is, is the large financial sector the consequence of pie splitting, taking resources away from medicine and education and clothing? Or is it a product of growing the pie? So by the financial sector becoming larger, does that allow small businesses to be financed? Does that allow pensioners to save for retirement? Does that allow other things to grow? And is this something which is pie enlarging? And the question is, it's not clear. Let's look at the evidence. There will be evidence for both sides of this debate, which is why my position on this is circumspect. But why I highlight this is that a large financial sector, that 119 billion number, might not be at the expense of every, everything else, but might be as a byproduct of serving those other sectors by allowing small businesses to grow and pensioners to invest. And indeed, there is a lot of research showing that this idea of lending money to companies or financing companies through things like venture capital has substantial effects on a nation's economic growth. Perhaps one of the most famous and cited papers is by two Chicago professors, Raghu Rajan, who used to be the governor of the Central Bank of India, and Luigi Zingales, called Financial Dependence and Growth. What they looked at was they looked at fast-growing industries in different countries. And those countries differed by their level of financial development. And they found that the same industry grew much faster in countries with a more developed financial sector than those without, suggesting that a more developed financial sector does help in terms of helping these fledgling companies to grow. This is what leads to an entrepreneur with a dream, embedding that dream into a vision, into a reality, and turning that into a company. That's what allows a small company to get scale and to grow and then to become something large, which might be benefiting uh, large numbers of, of, of citizens. So there's a lot of research here on the benefits of an efficient banking system, of a financing helping investment, of financing helping growth at a country level. And therefore, it's not surprising that a lot of government policy is trying to encourage financing, particularly for small businesses. In the UK, you'll probably know about the Enterprise Investment Scheme, which are tax-efficient ways to invest in fledgling companies. So I support, through this scheme, um, a bakery which tries to promote disadvantaged women. I also support a coffee company, New Ground Coffee, which will try to hire ex-convicts, so they'll try to rehabilitate them within society. The bakery, by the way, is called Luminary, which helps disadvantaged women. And those are ways in which I can support them through the scheme. There's also the Madeleine provision in France, which does something similar. And there's also Invest in Germany. That tries to encourage the financial sector to fund new companies. And some of you will know that the UK government published this industrial strategy white paper where a cornerstone of making the UK more competitive is to allow greater access to financing for these small businesses. So if you took that at face value, you might think, well, finance is really good. But as I'm trying to stress, right, there's no, nothing is black and white, there's shades of gray. So just like we can't take this at face value, we also shouldn't take these arguments at face value. Because even though this is based on really good research, showing that providing new financing helps companies and helps countries and helps citizens, there is one big catch. What is this big catch? Is actually in the UK, a huge amount of financing activity is negative. What do I mean by this? Now, when we think about financing helping companies, we think about companies raising new financing. 
So it could be that a company like Uber is considering this right now. They're considering going to the markets and raising new funds. However, actually, a lot of the activity is the reverse of that. Companies actually spend a lot of their money buying back their shares from investors. So rather than raising money from investors, they're buying back their shares from investors, and that's something known as a share buyback. And if you were just to look at this graph, that will show you uh, what people are concerned about. Again, for those of you who can't see the text, the blue is the amount of share buybacks, the pink is the amount of new share issues, and the gray here is the pink minus the blue. So that is how much net share issuance companies are doing within the UK. That's how much they're raising versus how much they're buying back. And the striking thing about this figure is that in many, many years, this is negative, right? Other than 09 and 15, in every year this seems to be uh, negative. And so that suggests that the stock market is not doing its job. It's sucking out even more money from companies than it's injecting. And therefore, it's not surprising at all that people are very concerned about the use of share buybacks. Within the UK, the UK government launched an inquiry into the potential misuse of share buybacks. And in the US, they're also concerns. And what's really interesting is that this is one of the few topics which has united both Democrats and Republicans. So Senator um, Rubio, who's a Republican, has proposed cracking down on share buybacks. And Senator Elizabeth Warren um, has also um, proposed crackdowns. She argues that stock buybacks create a sugar high for corporations. It boosts prices in the short run, but the real way to boost the value of a corporation is to invest in the future, and they are not doing that. Why? Well, what the argument I said to you earlier is finance benefits because I raise money and I use that money to hire workers. I use that money to invest. But if instead, I'm, if I'm not raising money, if I'm paying money out, then I must be investing less. I might be paying fewer wages. I might be firing people. So that's everything in reverse. And this seems to be supported by evidence. So Professor William Lazonic said that 91% of net income goes to buybacks and dividends. That left very little for investments in productive capabilities or higher incomes for employees. So in order to satisfy these investors, the stock market, companies are starving their funds, their, uh, CEOs are starving their companies of funds for investment, and that is a big problem. Well, why might a CEO want to do that? It seems strange that you want to hurt your own company by starving it from in, of investment and employment. Why might a CEO do this? Well, let's look at an example. Let's look at the health insurance company, Humana. Now, in 2013, they had a pretty good year. They earned $7.73 per share. But 2014, that wasn't such a good year. The earnings were $7.34. Who's that bad for? Well, that's bad for the shareholders of Humana, who, remember, they're not just nameless, faceless capitalists. These could be pension funds saving for retirement. It could be a university endowment. So that's bad for them. But it was also bad for this guy. This guy was the CEO called Bruce Broussard. Why was he so unhappy that earnings per share were only 7.34? Because he had a huge bonus target of $7.50. If he hit this bonus target, he would get a big payday. And because the earnings were so low at 7.34, he wasn't getting his payday. So what did he try to do? Well, one thing he tried to do was manipulate earnings. So um, you, what you can do by changing your accounting policies and sort of cooking the books, 
you can change how much revenue you report. And this is why people had concerns with, say, Patisserie Valerie more recently, is that what they were stating was the case wasn't true. So he tried those tricks. He changed the accounting policies, got it all the way up to $7.49 through doing this. But not quite there, still not getting his payday. So what was the final thing he did? It was a share buyback. How does a share buyback work? Well, when you're buying back shares, the number of shares that are outstanding are lower. Earnings per share is earnings divided by shares. So if there's fewer shares because you've used the company's money to buy them back, your earnings per share goes up. And that's what happened. $7.51, he did exactly the right buyback to get himself a big payday, $1.68 million, despite performing poorly on the actual thing he should have been focusing on, which was providing health insurance. It was cooking the books and then buying back shares, which got him that money. And so what is the general problem here? I've alluded to this previously, but I want to get everybody on the same page in case this is new to you. Earnings per share is something that managers are often evaluated according to. Earnings divided by shares. And there's potentially good reasons for why this is something that investors and boards and perhaps even employees might use to try to see how is their chief executive doing. And why is that reasonable? What are earnings? That's your revenues minus your costs. What could a good CEO do? Well, she might boost the revenues. Here's revenues in a large, large font. Or she might cut unnecessary costs, costs in small font. And so if you indeed boost your earnings per share by increasing your revenues or cutting some unnecessary costs, yeah, you should be rewarded for it. And that's why Bruce Broussard was given this $7.50 earnings target. But there's a catch. And the catch is that the other way you can increase your earnings per share is you don't bother about changing the revenues, don't bother about cutting costs, just reduce the number of shares outstanding by buying back shares, and you get this big payday. And so that's why this could be misused. Rather than investing and hiring people, you use finance not to benefit society. That's the title of this lecture. You use it to benefit yourself. And so what we have here is share buybacks potentially shrink the pie. By using money and using this to pay out rather than invest, the whole pie shrinks, but executives take more of the pie. So what I have here is the same pie as before, now the blue is what the CEO takes, the orange is what society gets, and here the CEO is getting more of a smaller pie. That was what the 1.68 million pounds was. So even though the value of the company may have fallen, Bruce didn't care. Why? Because he's got the bonus. Now, let's look at this argument critically. Because if this was true, and if this was true in every single case, we should be really concerned with share buybacks. We should perhaps prohibit them and outlaw them. They're a way of manipulating your earnings in order to get yourself a bonus. But remember, one of the hallmarks of these lectures is we want to look at large-scale evidence, not what happens in one individual case. And so what I want to do here is I want to look at many of the concerns that people have about share buybacks and to evaluate them critically. And again, let me stress, this is not to be an apologist for share buybacks. At the end of the lecture, I'm going to acknowledge that they do need to be changed and reformed. But again, the correct reforms depend on diagnosing them properly. And one common concern that people have is that buybacks are a free gift to investors. Rather than investing within a company, you pay them out to shareholders, and indeed a prominent newspaper article called this a $53 billion gift because Trump tax reforms made buybacks easier. But it's very important to note 
that share buybacks are not a gift. If I'm a company and I'm engaging in the buyback, I'm giving you, the shareholders, some money, but in return, you're giving up your share. All a share buyback is, is somebody selling their shares and selling their shares back to the company. They're neither gaining nor losing. Yes, they have money in their back pocket, but they no longer have their shares. It's a bit like, let's say you've got a mortgage. If you've got a mortgage, maybe one month, you might decide to make an overpayment. Now, the overpayment of your mortgage that you've made is not a free gift to the bank. You're not giving the bank a charitable donation. Yeah, you're giving them money, but they've reduced their claim on your home in the future, and that's the same with the Bible. I'm not going to go through all of these points. I want to, as always, leave enough time for questions afterwards. Let's go back to Professor Lazonic's argument, which is 91% of net income goes to buybacks and dividends that left very little for investments in productive capabilities or higher income from in, for employees. That statement and that evidence is very widely quoted, and that seems a smoking gun. Because of buybacks, companies are investing nothing, right? Virtually every penny they're making, or 91 pence of every pound, goes to be paid out towards shareholders. But this statistic makes an extremely basic error. Because net income or profits, that is already calculated after deducting what you've already paid to workers. And after deducting, what you've invested in many forms, such as research and development and advertising. So the idea that you're not investing any of this money makes no sense because the investment has already taken place before you've actually calculated your profits. It's a bit like saying the kids had nothing to eat because their plates are empty, right? Their plates are empty because they've already eaten and that's why they are empty. So that's just the same as the argument they're making here. But again, people don't scrutinise this argument, even though it makes this very basic mistake, because it seems consistent with the popular belief that everything about this is evil. Now, the final point here is perhaps the most nuanced. You think, well, if a company is profitable, if it's made a lot of money, shouldn't that money go to not just shareholders, but stakeholders, Couldn't, shouldn't you give the employees a pay rise or maybe invest in reducing your carbon emissions and so on? Now, if a company's successful, it's clearly never just down to investors or CEOs. Your workers worked very hard. And this is why I think it's critically important, and this has been a theme of all my lectures, that stakeholders benefit. What do I mean by stakeholders? These are every other member of a company, other than investors. They're the workers, they're the customers, they're the communities, there's the suppliers. But notice, they do benefit. Workers get wages, suppliers get their revenues for their inputs, customers, they get the product. The difference is not that investors get everything and stakeholders get nothing. Both get stuff. But while stakeholders get something which is fixed, investors' return is risky. Let me give you an example. Let's say I owned a house, which I don't. I live in London. I'm not wealthy enough to own a house in London, only a small apartment. But let's say I owned a house, and I wanted to sell it. And before selling it, I want to replace the roof. So I might hire a contractor, and then the builder, and the builder comes and rebuilds the roof. Now, how much should I pay him or her? Now, one option would be to pay him or her a fixed amount, let's say 10,000 pounds. Now, if that was the case, he would get the 10,000 pounds regardless of how much I sell my house for. And that's kind of fair, right? Because how much I sell my house for depends on how much effort I put into cleaning the house and marketing it it depends on the state of the housing market. So the builder might be perfectly happy taking that £10,000 as fixed. Now, he's clearly being rewarded, but he's rewarded in something which is fixed. And the same is true for employees within a company. 
So if you're working within a company, you will get your salary for how much uh, you, you've worked. Now, independent of whether the conditions are good or not, whether the, the uh, toys that you manufactured sell or not, you're getting that salary. That is something which is fixed. Now, notice that's not the only way that we could do the division. I might have thought, well, maybe this new, this new roof is so fundamental to the sale price of my house that let me not give the builder £10,000, let me give him or her £5,000 plus one hundredth of the sale proceeds so that he or she has now skin in the game and has an incentive to work harder. And that's a fair division and that's, that's something which is, alternative, which, is, which is also fine. But most companies have chosen to give stakeholders something which is fixed why? Because it removes risk from them. Now, I don't actually agree with this. Something that I stressed in my second lecture is that we should make sure that workers do benefit when the company does well by giving shares to all employees, not just the top management. Why? Because if a company does well, it's partly down to the workers. But notice whether workers share in the benefits of success that depends on whether they are given shares or not. That doesn't depend on whether there's a buyback or not. Okay, so this is a question of, are you giving your workers and suppliers a fixed reward or a variable reward that's nothing to do with this buyback decision? Let's look at a few, a few other concerns, and some of these concerns I will now start to agree with. So Elizabeth Warren said the real value the real way to boost the value of a company is to invest in the future. And we always think that investment is good, but notice it's a bit more nuanced than that. Investment only creates value if the benefits of the investment are greater than the cost. You might think, well, a company should produce, should invest in a new machine or build a new factory, but if it does that, it takes resources away which could instead be used to build a school. And so just investing more and more is not always going to be beneficial. What matters is, is that investment worth the cost of the resources which could be used elsewhere in society? And uh, this, we've, I talked in prior lectures about examples of, say, Daewoo, the Korean company, which grew in many, many areas, which were not part of its, its expertise and destroyed a lot of value. But here's the nuance. And here's where I might start to agree with the concerns. So some people say this concern. If you're a C some CEOs say, I am buying back shares because I don't have any good investment ideas. Right? There's no good opportunities for me to invest the money. Let me buy back the shares. Some people say, well, if you're a CEO and you don't have anything better to do than buy back shares, you've run out of ideas. You're a bad CEO. And so I do agree with this to a degree. Why? One thing I've stressed right from the very start, from my very first lecture, is a new way to think about investments. Now, what finance professors like me sometimes argue, and argue wrongly, is that in order to make an investment, you calculate the costs and you calculate the benefits. But as I stressed in my very first lecture, many of the benefits of an investment cannot be forecast cannot be put into a spreadsheet. I, in my first lecture, talked about Merck, which decided to develop a new drug to cure people in Western Africa from river blindness. Now, that's not, not something that could ever be put in a spreadsheet. Why? Because the Africans suffering from river blindness were too poor to pay for the drug. So if Merck made this profit calculation, it would have never invested. There's no profit in giving a drug away for free to people in Africa. But what I've stressed in my lecture series is that whenever we think about an investment, we don't just think about the financial benefit, we think about the social benefits. And for something like developing this drug to cure blindness, there's a massive societal benefit. So if indeed there's a chief executive who thinks that she doesn't have good investment opportunities, she might indeed be making the wrong decision 
Why? Because she might not realise that many investments would have a large social benefit, even if they don't have an immediate financial benefit. But yet, despite that argument, despite the fact that I argue that CEOs should invest more than they typically do, there is still going to be a stopping point. Right? So even if you're the most inspired film director, and you think of extra scenes and extra special effects to put here and there, after a point in time, you've saturated it and any extra um, scheme would subtract value. Similarly here, even if you're a great skill with great ideas to invest in your workers, to reduce your pollution and so on, there will be a certain stopping point where you've actually done enough and you think that now the best use of my money is to pay it out to shareholders. Why? Because what can shareholders then do with their money? They can invest it elsewhere. This title of this lecture series is how business can better serve society so that the lens for any, division, any decision is not the company, but society. Indeed, by certain large companies paying out the surplus funds to investors, that allows those investors to finance the fledgling companies of tomorrow. Why is it that indeed it is quite easy at the moment for the US companies, startups to raise money in the stock market? It's because some investors are relatively flush with cash due to having received some money due to buy them. Now, let's look at a bit more evidence. Now, some people say stock buybacks create a sugar high for companies. It boosts the stock price in the short run. Yet evidence shows that it boosts prices in the long run even more. The first study which did this was based in the US, but more recently, data looking at countries globally finds that this still holds and still holds in the 21st century when the first study was based in the 20th century. Okay. Now, you might remember from my second lecture, I showed that if you give CEOs these targets of $7.50, CEOs take bad actions to hit the target, such as the accounting tricks and such as cutting investment. But they actually don't use buybacks to hit the target. The Humana example that I gave earlier, that is actually the exception, not the rule. And why is that? Because buybacks can only change your earnings by a small amount. Remember, if you go back to the um, earlier chart, maybe I'm going to regret <laughs> trying to do this, right? Most of what you can do in order to change your earnings is play with your accounts, cut investment. That changed 15 cents. Buybacks are typically really small. So it's very rarely the case that they are used in order to hit earnings targets. So when are they misused? They are misused in certain cases. One of my own studies finds that when a CEO is about to sell her shares, she engages in a buyback to boost the stock price, and so then she can sell her shares for more. So what's the remedy to this? It's to address the root cause of the problem, which is that incentives are based on the short-term stock price. As I showed in the second lecture, whenever you are concerned with the short-term stock price, you do many bad things to inflate it. You buy back shares, you mess around with your accounts, you might cut wages, you might cut investment. So the big conclusion from my lecture two was to give CEOs shares which they cannot sell for five, seven, or 10 years. Let me move to a very different topic in my final 10 minutes. Away from share buybacks, but another controversial feature of financial markets. Now, when I talked about the idea that finance benefits society, I talked about primary financial markets. This is investors providing you funds to companies for the first time. So let's say you want to start a small business. I'm giving you financing. I'm giving you some cash to do this, like I'm giving cash to the bakery and to the coffee company. But actually, most of the activity that we see in financial markets occurs in what I call secondary financial markets. So here, no new shares, no new money is going to companies. 
let's say I'm choosing to trade with Sarah, shares in, let's say, Vodafone. What happens is that I've got my shares in Vodafone, I'm selling my shares to Sarah, and she's giving me money for them. No new money goes to Vodafone, but we are just trading second-hand shares between us. And you might think, well, that clearly doesn't add value to society. Yes, when I invested in Vodafone to begin with, I gave Vodafone some money, but when I sell my shares secondhand to Sarah, Vodafone doesn't benefit. And if you see all the highly paid people which are earning the salaries that I mentioned earlier, most of what they do is they're trading securities that are already issued. So people might think, well, this trading is excessive. They take this concern seriously. The proposed EU transactions tax suggests that some of this trading may be disastrous and we want to tax it. But what I want to stress in my, my final um, segment of this lecture is that even secondary trading, even trading second-hand securities, can create value for society. Why? Let's go back to something I mentioned in my last lecture, but let me repeat it for those of you who didn't attend or uh, don't fully remember what, I, um, what the point was. So, when the managers think about do I want to invest for the long run? They're concerned about the fact that, well, maybe the stock market doesn't look at the benefit in the short term. Let's say I'm a CEO. I want to train my workers and invest in them and invest in their personal development and their physical and mental wellness. Now, the stock market might not recognise those benefits immediately. And I showed in my first lecture, it takes five years for the stock market to fully recognise this. As a CEO, I might be worried about this because I might be fired before then if my stock price is low. But let's say Sarah is a very smart trader. When she chooses to trade stocks, she doesn't just look at the earnings. She actually looks at how well workers are being treated. And you might think, well, isn't this sort of fanciful? No, this is true. Right, so there is indeed a large fund within the US, the Parnassus Endeavor Fund, whose their main investment thesis is to evaluate how well workers are being treated. They recognize that people are the most important asset, so they don't look at dividends, they look at the workers. And indeed, Morningstar rated them the best large cap fund over the last one year, three year, five years, and 10 years in terms of their performance. It makes sense to evaluate workers and how well they're being treated when you're choosing which stocks to buy. So let's say Sarah comes along and sees that maybe Vodafone is treating its workers really well, and this is not reflected in the stock price. So Sarah comes and buys up the shares of Vodafone, increasing the price. And that is really helpful for you as a CEO, because if you know that there are informed investors out there who are making their trading decisions based on these long-term factors. Are you investing in your workers? Are you promoting diversity? Are you reducing climate change? Then, as a CEO, you're free to make those long-term decisions. And because of this secondary trading, that's going to be putting that information into prices. Now, that's not to say that all trading is good, right? If you're a trader making your decisions based on short-term earnings, that's really bad. But what I'm going to end with in a couple of slides' time is we want to make sure that the trading that we have is based on those long-term decisions. But before I get to that, I'm going to talk about a new point, which I didn't even mention in lecture four, which is the idea of learning from the market. So here's the idea. CEOs make big decisions every day. And they've got a lot of information, but they also might suffer from groupthink, right? So they might ask the other um, top managers what they think about it. They might ask investment bankers to advise them or management consultants, but they might be their friends as well, and they might really want an outside opinion. So let's look at one case in which an outside opinion was useful. Carly Fiorina, who used to be the CEO of Hewlett-Packard, she considered making a bid for PwC Consulting. And the rest of the board agreed with this. Presumably, they used uh, investment bankers who agreed with this as well. 
they made the approach to PwC Consult, the stock price went down. Why did the stock price went go down? Because of these people who are working in the financial services sector, trading their shares, they realized that this was a bad deal, they sold their shares, and that drove the stock price down. And as a result of that, Carly Fiorina said, I made a mistake. I have listened to you, and I realized that this is going to be a bad deal, so I will reverse this, and that actually saved millions or billions of dollars being wasted in this bad acquisition. So the idea is that this secondary trading by loads and loads of investors, millions of investors, that goes and affects the price, and that's something that a manager can learn from to guide her decisions. And this wasn't just an isolated case. Lucent and Alcatel, that was another case of a merger that was stopped because of the stock market's reaction. What about a cautionary tale of when there was stubbornness? Quaker Oats and Snapple. When Quaker Oats made the bid for Snapple, the stock price went down by 10% because these clever, sophisticated traders realised that this was not in the long-term interests. Quaker did not change its course, went ahead with this decision, and lost $1.4 billion in this, which is one of the worst acquisitions, still used in business school case studies of, the, uh, of, of how bad acquisitions can be. Let's look at the evidence. I'm not going to go through this in, in huge detail because I want to allow time for questions, but there are indeed some really good papers out there showing that indeed when the market goes down, people are more likely to withdraw and stop bad M&A deals. They learn from the market. There's a large literature which looks at how a manager's investment decisions will change compared to the stock price. So why is it that people might not be investing in coal nowadays, but they might be investing in clean energy. Because the stock prices of clean energy companies are rising, the stock prices of coal companies are going down. The stock price is a useful signal of the quality of a company. And simply, it's not just investment decisions. Maybe my MBA students from London Business School, when they decide what career they want to go to afterwards, they're going to look at the ones where the stock price is high because that captures the growth prospects of the industry. Again, we see tobacco perhaps declining, coal declining, other sectors rising. So what these traders do when they trade is they give a free signal, the stock price, which you can use in order to evaluate how good an investment opportunity is. And indeed, there's evidence showing that CEOs will invest more when the stock price is higher, unless when the stock price is lower, they'll use this as a useful independent guide of their investment opportunities. And they're more likely to do this if the stock price is more informative, i.e. the traders who are trading are not trading on the short-term information, but on this long-term factor. And so that takes me to my final slide. It's to acknowledge there's many parts of finance that do harm society. For example, there are times in which there's short selling, where you might sell a stock and, like, and you still vote on an important decision. That's something which should be outlawed. So short selling, for those of you who don't know this, this is where I have a negative position in a stock. I benefit from the stock doing badly, but yet I borrow votes from somebody else in order to vote for the company to make a bad decision. That, I believe, should be outlawed. That harms society. Other things which harm society are when investors trade on short-term earnings, not on the long-term factors like employee satisfaction. That's something I addressed in my last lecture, where what we want to make sure is that investors have large stakes. Why? Because it means that when they trade, they're going to be basing it on these long-term decisions. Why does Parnassus Endeavour Fund look at the employee satisfaction of a company when deciding to trade? It's because it only owns a small number of companies, and so it has the incentives and the resources to really get into the weeds of every company and to see how well workers have been treated. We don't so much want investors who hold 300 companies because if so, you have no idea what's going on. 
The only thing that you can look at is profits and dividends because you can find that on Yahoo Finance. There's also a lot of concern with finance companies doing really bad things. So committing fraud. So this was in Wells Fargo where they were just selling products to every com to customers as much as possible, regardless of their want or need. I told uh, people a few lectures ago about the strategy which was called going for great, where the CEO made every sales rep sell eight products to every customer, even if they didn't need them. And why did he call this, why did he choose eight? Because it rhymes with great. So that was the scientific rationale for why he was forcing you to sell eight products regardless of whether the customers needed it. We also found cases of mis-selling of, of payment protection insurance, cases of the writing of subprime loans, which I talked about in prior lectures. And all of these things are really serious. And so you might think, well, have I trivialized the issue by spending only one slide on this topic and the rest of my lecture on share buybacks and on um, trading? No. Why are we only spending one lecture on this, one slide on this? Is that we all know that fraud is bad, right? You didn't need to come here to give up your Wednesday evening to hear me telling you that fraud is bad. That's something there's huge agreement on. Why I spent most of the lecture talking about share buybacks and secondary trading is those are much more nuanced and those are cases in which actually the evidence suggests something which might be different from what the public opinion is. Whereas here, something, these are cases in which I fully agree with what everybody says, all of these things are bad. And I've suggested solutions to that in my prior lectures. So for those of you who are unable to attend them, one of them is to lengthen the horizon of executive pay, as I mentioned earlier. Why did this case happen in Countrywide where they wrote subprime loans? Is that the CEO sold these loans, then cashed out $140 million of his own shares. So when the loans went delinquent in the financial crisis, he didn't care, he cashed out. So you want to make sure that you hold your loans, for your pay for a long time. And then number part two is how do we address all of these issues is a sense of purpose. What is the purpose of a company? It is not to make money. If your purpose is to make money, then you are going to sell eight products, even if customers don't want them, you're going to miss sell insurance. But if your purpose of a company as a bank is to improve consumer welfare and to help people save for their financial future, you're going to think really seriously, are the products that we are selling genuinely benefiting customers? And so that's something I talked about in lecture one. And finally, I talked about the idea of improving corporate governance in, in lecture three, to have challenges from the group thing that we see and to have investors trying to hold companies accountable for purpose. It's one thing saying our purpose is to improve financial well-being, but it's another thing to put it into practice. And so I highlighted the role of investors in society more generally in making sure that companies do what they actually say. So this is all I have for now. I'm very happy to take questions and, and challenges. And again, as I say in every lecture, please do challenge me if you disagree with everything, anything that I've said. I also learn from hearing different viewpoints. Thank you.